Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. This is another chance to hear the episodes that we originally published in January 2022 about the role of the Vikings in the birth of Kiev and consequently Ukraine and Russia Obviously, the question of what is Ukraine and what is Russia is massively relevant now in late February 2022, with Vladimir Putin apparently on the brink of invasion. Just a word of warning in this episode as well, there is a pretty graphic description of a Viking funeral that some listeners may find upsetting. It probably isn't an episode to listen to in the company of children. Thank you for listening. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. We are recording this in early February 2022 um, at a time of escalating tensions in Eastern Europe focused um, along the border of Russia with Ukraine. Um, and Dominic, it's it's fascinating, isn't it, if you have any interest in early medieval history? Because um, last summer, Vladimir Putin, or at least someone pretending to be Vladimir Putin... <laughs> wrote an essay about the historical background to this. 5,000 um, words, Tom, I think it was. 5,000 words. And he, he went back, uh, obviously, through the history of the Soviet Union, back through the emergence of the Russian Empire. But he ended up going all the way back to the 10th century and the emergence of the Kingdom of the Rus. Yeah. Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians, Vladimir Putin, I put that slightly in inverted commas, wrote, are all descendants of ancient Rus, which was the largest state in Europe. Slavic and other tribes across the vast territory were bound together by one language, economic ties, the rule of the princes of the Rurik dynasty, and after the baptism of the Rus, the Orthodox faith. Um, and I guess two things leap out from that. One is Putin's argument that because there was this great empire, this great kingdom of the Rus, covering a vast expanse of territory. Therefore, everybody who was, you know, lives in lands that constituted that kingdom properly should be part of Russia, I guess is the, the kind of implicit argument. Um, and the other argument is, it's, it's one from silence, where he, he, um, he talks about Slavic and other tribes, but he notably does not mention <laughs> anyone coming from Scandinavia, which is very much the sense that I have, that the foundations of the Rus kingdom, this kind of emergent kingdom in uh, in 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 what becomes russia and and ukraine um were actually vikings well this is a massively controversial issue isn't it tom so this week's subject is the um the vikings in the east which is this impossibly kind of romantic violent exotic exciting murky subject but it's also politically very controversial so in the soviet union um there were massive arguments and there was a sort of the real movement in the Soviet Union to say that basically, okay, there were some Scandinavians, i.e. Vikings there, but they weren't very important. 
and their cultural imprint was soon kind of, you know, it was, buried. It was lost, buried by Slavic traditions and Slavic culture. And we don't owe anything to these to these Scandinavians, yeah. basically. Yeah, so, so as I understand it, that argument first developed in the 18th century against the backdrop of Peter the Great's kind of defeat of the Swedes. Yeah. So obviously the Russians then didn't want to think that, you know, the foundation of their, their kingdom was was Swedish. And then again, isn't it right that uh, um, it was it was the Nazi invasion that really turbocharged exactly. this idea because Hitler said that without, you know, the Norsemen going in, the, the Russians would be living like rabbits or something. Exactly. So it's a sort of, um, there's a, obviously a, a Germanic aspect to to kind of Norse culture. They're very closely related. And so in the 20th century, it became really important for Stalin to sort of say, you know, no, we don't know. And I think because the story is often told with kind of Viking overlords, as we'll go on to describe, Viking overlords, in inverted commas, civilizing the Slavic tribes. And obviously, if you are a, a very keen Slavophile, if you're a kind of Slav nationalist, that's very offensive. The idea that you needed to be civilized by kind of Vikings in horned helmets, which they obviously didn't wear um, in their longboats and whatnot. But of course, I mean, if you if you uh, come from Britain, actually, the perspective you have on the Vikings is that this civilizing process, by by definition, I mean, is incredibly brutal. That um, that, that that acknowledging the influence that Vikings, you know, have on ninth, tenth century Europe, whether it's in Britain, or whether it's in um, you know the lands of the of the Dnieper and the Volga, um, this isn't necessarily a civilizing process. It's a process of of kind of conquest and brutalization. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the really interesting thing is that these these two things are happening in parallel. So everybody think when they think of the Vikings, I mean, basically pretty much every primary school in Britain, as far as I can tell, because the Vikings at some point kids dress up in Viking outfits and they put on horned helmets and they learn about dragon proud longboats and stuff, but they almost always study it in, in terms of a story that the Vikings first pitch up at Lindisfarne, they sat in the monastery and then they're constantly attacking England and France and Spain. And, you know, Alfred in the, burns his cakes uh, there are a series of battles. The Vikings said, you know, it's all the West and then expeditions to Greenland and Iceland. But actually, you know, a lot of Viking historians, Neil Price, for example, would, would say actually what the Vikings are doing in the West is a copy. They're copying what they've already started doing in the East. And it's the story in the East that is that is more exotic, more exciting, and also, crucially, I would say, more lucrative. There's so much money for a Viking to, to yep. make sailing to the east rather than to the west and yeah. and you could argue that in the long run couldn't you tom creating russia it's quite quite a big <laughs> yeah. big and thing ukraine <laughs> yeah and ukraine right well <laughs> the issue of which of those can lay claim it's a bit like the greek the argument we had in alexander the great podcast about greece and macedonia and north macedonia as it's now called fighting over the legacy of alexander the great isn't it yeah because this russia stuff really ukraine, matters yeah they both see themselves as the heirs of the of the kievan rus civilization yeah, so we've we've um, I mean, the Vikings are such a great topic. Um, we've both I, I wrote about them in Millennium. I wrote about the Vikings in the East. You were writing a children's book about the Vikings right now, aren't you? I'm so indeed. you're absolutely yeah. kind of immersed in this. Yeah. It's such a great topic, um, and we've we've done one episode already on the the Norse epics, which essentially took us from Iceland to Greenland to Vinland and the New World. But even in Iceland, they are writing epics about. Um, what the Vikings are getting up to That's in right. the lands of yeah. the East, um, going down the rivers um, to, to Baghdad, the 
the capital of the greatest empire on the face of the earth, to Miklagard, the golden city of Caesar, Constantinople. And as you say, it's it's a story um, that is very, very thrilling because you have the same, you know, obviously the idea of, of taking ship and discovering North America. I mean, that's an incredible story. But so also is the idea that, that people are going from Scandinavia and kind of pitching up in Baghdad. Yeah. You know, or even further afield. I mean, it's it it is an astonishingly romantic narrative. Well, the be- before we get into the the um the sort of the narrative of it, I mean, the best example of that, and the one that most certainly British listeners, maybe English speaking listeners, will know. Everybody knows the story of ten sixty six. Certainly in in Britain, they do the Battle of Hastings, Harold and William. But obviously, there's a battle before that against a guy called Harold Hardrada, um, who comes over from Norway to try and claim the English throne. And the life of Harold Hardrada is this whole business in microcosm. Yeah. You know, he had been in 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 Norway. He ends up going to Kiev. He ends up going to Constantinople and commanding the imperial bodyguard. He prob- may have gone to Sicily. He may have gone to um, the Holy Land. You Bulls know, this, Dragon, this incredible... Married a princess. Well, these incredible adventures, many of which are unquestionably true because they're backed up in kind of, you know, Byzantine sources. So, I mean, you think about that life. He's had a, He had a more interesting, well-traveled life than probably most of our listeners certainly (laughs) than us (laughs) yeah definitely well so so we've got um from mary kirk alves um who asked very simply why were the vikings going east was it more of an expedition or a conquest so obviously the the geography of scandinavia kind of you know the 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 ancients thought of it as an island they they didn't realize it was a peninsula so you can take ship and go west across the north sea or or into the baltic up the, the gulf of finland um and beyond the gulf of finland lies the vast expanse basically of Eurasia and the Vikings knew it as, as Sweden, the great Sweden, the cold, a, a land of, of giants, of dwarves, of dragons, of men with mouths between their nipples who never spoke, but only barked. So an, an intimidating place, but yeah. a place that as it turns out with incredible courage, with incredible fortitude, with incredible daring can lead you to the richest lands on the face of the planet, the lands yeah, of, 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 of the Caliphate and of the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, if you think about the geography, so if you live in Norway, if you live on you know, one of the fjords or something, when you look out, you see the North Sea and beyond it, very rich um, kind of farmlands of England and the monasteries of Ireland and so on. And, and that's the way you go. But obviously, if you live in Sweden, you're, you're looking out east, southeast, and the first thing you see is an island called Gotland. Where have you been to Gotland, Tom? I have. Have you? I, yeah, I have. I went there on holiday a couple of years ago. Absolutely amazing place. Beautiful island. Fantastic churches where Rachel Morley would enjoy it. Um, but also coin hoards. These incredible hoards of coins. Thousands and thousands of Arabic dirhams um, that have come up the rivers. So basically, what you would do if you were an entrepreneurial eighth-century Swede. You would go to Gotland, and that's the sort of staging post where you maybe find people for your crew or you sign on with somebody. And then obviously the place to go from, I mean, you know, England or France, they're not really on your radar. What you do is you keep going across the Baltic, and there, as you say, you get the mouths of these rivers, and you know that somewhere at the end of that river is one of the richest cities on earth, Miklagard, Constantinople. And beyond it, it's all the wealth of the of the caliphate and you have direct, I think there are two things crucially that you have if you're Scandinavian that they they will buy from you one of them is furs which you can kind of pick up on the way 
and the other, crucially, is slaves. So this is a real, yeah. a massive slave trading enterprise. Yeah, it it, it absolutely is. Um, and I think that um, I mean, let's. So how do you get there if you're on, on you know, if you're in Sweden? So there's um, there's the uh, there's Gotland, as you say, and there's this place called Birka, which is um, I think just west of of Stockholm now. Been to Birka, Tom. And um, it, it's as close to a town as you get in kind of early ninth century Scandinavia. Um, and, and from these kind of centers, you can head eastwards up the Gulf of Finland. Um, and there's the Volkov river. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's a town, um, Staraja Laduga. Yeah. Staraja Laduga. Tom. Is that how you pronounce it? Your Russian is shocking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 so, so, um, so that's this, a is, sort this of... is a kind of, well, it's not wild west, is it? It's wild east. Well, it's, Neil it's, Price has a lovely thing in his book, The Children of Ash and Elm, where he says it's basically Deadwood. So, um, <laughs> right. you know, it's sort of saloons. It's, But I think a couple of people, he's not the only person to have made that American analogy because Tom Shippey in his book, Laughing Till I Die, about the Vikings, he has a nice section about how um, he, he says, you know, the way you th- – to answer Mary Kirk's question, it's not really like the kind of raids on Lindisfarne and stuff. He says the way to think about it is about trappers and traders in North America. Yeah, with fur. I mean, with fur, you know, yeah, the, the parallel exactly. is- Paddling down these rivers, and there are sort of, there are indigenous people, tribes on either side. Sometimes they'll trade with them. Sometimes they'll kind of fight each other. And that's sort of, that's the, and even the topography, you know, it's very heavily wooded, lots of rivers, lakes and yeah. things. So you start off in Storia Ladiga and you kind of, and that's kind of expanding as time goes. And I think that's found in about 750, 753 or something. And then and then you go south, don't you? You pick your river and well, you kind I, of Yes, because what, what the what the, the Vikings are bringing is the technology that enables them to navigate these rivers. Um and, and that's evident, I think, even in the name, right? I mean that's so um there was a a message from um Tapani Simajoki, friend of the show, uh, a, a Finn. Um, and he says an interesting tidbit on the linguistics of the East Vikings and Finland as the brackish meeting point of East and West. The Finnish Sweden, Ruotsi, is probably derived from the same root as Rus, Ruslagen. And Rus, so Ruslagen, Rus is, is rowing. Yeah. Lagen is kind of, kind of the band, isn't it? So the land of the rowers. Um, yeah. And that idea of ships going down rivers, people rowing. Um, often against the current, with the current, um, and the ships are sufficiently, you know, they're built so that they can negotiate quite shallow waters, and they're sufficiently light that, you know, you get to a lake, you need to to go across to the head of a river, you can carry the ship. Yeah, but that's where also where the slaves come in very handy. So this constant issue of the portage, I think, is the uh, technical yeah. term, where you basically you get to the end of your bit of river, or you get to the point where you need to cross over, and basically you need to be able to get out, either semi dismantle your ship, or or the ship is light enough to to for you to carry it, or your slaves to carry it, or your slaves. Well, this is where the slaves basically your cargo are carrying it for you. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of genius, if you like, the sort of horrific genius of the business model. That you're trading human beings who are doing a lot of the work for you, and so and so, obviously there's there's incredibly you know you're very vulnerable if you're having to carry a ship, you know up mountains and you know where the rapids are or uh, you know through forests or whatever. So uh, you're, you're you're very vulnerable, and so that that's why along the length of of these lakes, these rivers, at certain key points, you start to get more and more 
kind of thoughts really so novgorod yeah. i mean it's it you're the you, you're the russian speaker here dominic that, that means <laughs> new new fort doesn't it yeah. so that, that so that appears on um uh lake hillman that's right and they called it Holmgard, i think didn't they um the um the rus themselves little the little fort and it's sort of i think a lot of these forts are kind of a very North American style. They're kind of made of logs, aren't they? So everything in Novgorod is, is made of wood. Yeah. Everything. Even the kind of, you know, rather than paper, they're writing on kind of bark and things. Um, so so they're that. not. So to answer, go back to Mary Kirk's question, is it is it a conquest? I don't think they think of it as a conquest because they're not interested in, you know, it's not a risk where they're interested in kind of capturing lots of land. What they're interested in is the route, is the river and making money. And yeah. they established the forts as kind of trading stations, basically. And you can imagine the kind of, I think uh, Neil Price in his book has a little stuff about, you know, the scene, people drinking, uh, probably lots of crime. <laughs> Tinkling on the piano. <laughs> well, so, kind of, sassy, sassy, <laughs> sassy bar tarts. Yeah. yeah. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. But that's the sort of atmosphere. And obviously that's quite cosmopolitan in the sense that there are lots of these Scandinavians who are mostly, I think, Swedes, because that's obviously where, where, where you come from. Um, but there are also undoubtedly at this stage lots of Slavs. So even at this stage, I think you've got the yeah. mix that that becomes Russia, the mix of Scandinavian and Slav. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, so Novgorod is it, it's a place. I mean, it's very like a kind of Western. So you get lots of of celebrated figures in the Norse epics. You know, when they're down on their luck, they they go there and they kind of recruit men. You know, people to to go off. Yeah. To, to Britain or you know attack Denmark or whatever but at the same time obviously from Novgorod you can cross the lake and you can then either uh, get the Dniper which will take you down to the Black Sea and from the Black Sea to Constantinople Miklagard the great city uh, or to the Volga which will take you to the Caspian Sea and from the Caspian Sea to Baghdad or yeah. to lands even kind of you know in in, in Central Asia the Silk so they, Road and they so attack on. Azerbaijan at one point maybe yeah, it comes no, that later. kind of incredible, incredible. Um, so so Novgorod is the kind of, I guess, the the, the meeting point of, of Scandinavia, Dniper, and the Volga. Yeah. Um, and, if, and if you're going the sort of the, the Western route, as it were, the route down to Miklagard, the next stop is what becomes Smolensk. So, I mean, these are, you know, if you think of a lot of kind of well-known Rus- Western Russian towns and cities, they have routes along this kind of route or or indeed, even further east along the Volga. So the, the Smolensk is a place called, um, seems to be a bit begun as a place called Nezdovo, and that's the confluence of the Dnieper and the Svinets River. And again, you know, it's the same sort of Wild West kind of atmosphere, but but it's like the, the, the tension is rising because you're about to approach, as you keep going south, you're going to approach these rapids, these very exciting rapids <laughs> yes. that bizarrely we know about from this incredible source, you, you must have, yeah. have a, a Byzantine emperor, no less. Yeah, who wrote a handbook? <laughs> yes, for his son Constantine yeah. the Seventh. So he wrote to a, the purple. He wrote a. He wrote yeah, Porphyrogenitus. He writes a, a foreign policy guide for his son Romanus. Basically, this is how you handle all our neighbours. I mean, just an incredible kind of almost like a policy document to have survived. And in it, he says, "So you know the Rus. Well, this is the this is the deal with them." And he basically explains, sets out the whole of the route. So he says they they have these special um, boats called, what are they called? Um, monoxala, single keel boats. So they're basically, he says at this point, they're in kind of disposable boats, kind of little kind of dugout canoes. 
Um, they all go together in a big flotilla, he says. And, and by this point, you're in what is now Ukraine. So you're going down the river through the center of what's now Ukraine. And the river's only navigable in the summer. And basically, you keep having to get out. And as the rapids approach, the slaves will carry your boats for you. And the rapids all have excellent names. Do you know all the names of these rapids? Yeah, they're terrifying, aren't they? And, they, and, and there's, one of them appears on an inscription actually in Gotland, I think. Does it? Mm. I didn't know that. Um, one of them is called the Drinker. Esupi, the drinker, Galandri, the yeller, Ifor, the ever fierce, Leanti, the laugher, so on and so forth. So they're sort of these weird names for all these different rapids, and they navigate all them. But by the point at which they're coming down, they're, they're now they're coming close to what are more like states and kind of confederations of tribes. Pechenegs. So there's the Pechenegs. They were terrifying. Who are, they're kind of nomad. They've just vanished from history now, haven't they? I don't know. I mean, I think they became Tatars or something. But they, but you wouldn't are, want to be caught by them. They're nomads. Well, they will, they will um, cut your head you. off, and they yeah. will um, make it into a goblet, won't they? Don't yeah. they do that later? As we'll discover later in the show, it's they very, do that very to, blood um, meridian. Um, so they'll do that, and there's also the Khazars, who are incredibly interesting. Yes, um, yes. So they so so I, I, th- I mean, so that they are further east, and they're basically a kind of buffer between the Slavs and the Caliphate. Um, so they're they're nomadic Turkic people, but they amazingly um, convert to Judaism, which is a distinctive thing to do. Well, they're the world's only Jewish state, aren't they? Between the the the, the Roman takeover of the Holy Land and the establishment of the state of Israel in the late nineteen forties, I mean, which is just an incredible thing to be. And why did they pick Judaism, Tom? Well, the story is, and and this this again will turn up later when we talk about the conversion of Kiev to um, to Christianity. Uh, the leader of the Khazars sends messages to um, to all the various powers to send him a, um, a, a Christian monk, uh, a Jewish rabbi, um, a Muslim scholar to go and persuade him. And it's the the Jewish um, it's the rabbi who who wins out. And this was the uh, the subject of a, a fabulous novel. Um, I think written in early eighties by a guy called Milorad Pavic, a Serbian novelist called Dictionary of the Khazars, which is, um, it's kind of a magical realist novel. Very good. I highly recommend it. And so the, the, the Khazars seem to, in a, a weird way, have become Jewish. But it sort of makes sense, right? Because they're stuck between two rival powers. Yeah. A Christian Byzantine and a Muslim empire. empire. Yeah. So they so, whichever they, where they jump, they're doomed. So they jump a third way and it kind of works for them. And I think that um, t- to begin with, the, the, it's the caliphate that is really the focus of, of the energies of the Rus rather than Byzantium, because it's, it's an absolute peak. You know, we've, so we've got um, lots of questions about silver. So Stefan Jensen, himself a Viking, why are there <laughs> such enormous amounts of Arabian silver coins in Viking graves a- a- across Scandinavia? Um, it, it's the volume of silver that is really attracting them. Um, and so to begin with, I think the you know, they're going down the Volga much more than they're going down towards the Black Sea. So they're going towards the Caspian. So they have to negotiate with um, with the Khazars. And some of them definitely do seem to have ended up in Baghdad. Well, they, they, um, they're, they're drawn by the silver, but also by the slave markets, right? There's an inexhaustible demand for slaves in Baghdad. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, obviously they are bringing slaves who are Slavs, but they also may well be bringing slaves that they've captured um, 
in in some of their other raids further north. So there are lots of children's books. I mean, there's a wonderful book by Rosemary Sutcliffe uh, called Blood Feud, where it's the story of a a boy, I think it is, who is captured in Wessex. He they take him to Dublin to the great slave markets there, and he ends up one way or another. He ends up going down the rivers, and he ends up in Constantinople. Um, but obviously, he could have ended up in Baghdad, and you know, it's it's not impossible by any means to to think of quite a lot of you know substantial number of Scandinavian, well, not pro- possibly Scandinavians themselves, English, Franks, Irish, Slavs going down all that way. Well, I think I think it is mainly Slavs. And and the evidence for that is obviously the fact that we have the word slave. I mean, it, it, it's absolutely imprinted on the English language uh, and many other European languages as well. I don't, have you read, uh, I've come across um, Michael McCormick's book, Origins of the European Economy, which <laughs> I which, haven't. It's a really, I, I mean, it's a massive book. And his argument essentially is that the caliphate uh, in all, you know, so not just the Abbasid caliphate, but the, the, the Muslim lands of North Africa um, and, and Spain as well, are so economically advanced ahead of Europe that all that Europe can provide really is slaves, and and so uh, the, the the main provider of slaves is um, uh, Otto the Great, for instance, friend of the show. So he is, you know, they are harvesting vast vast numbers of Slavs, and they're being transported through Europe down through Spain to North Africa. What the Vikings are doing is that they are going to the richest, you know, the heartland of the Islamic world and going to to Baghdad. And it's that that opens up, you know, the vast kind of stream of silver that they're then able to bring back. Um, And, and it's, it's, it's really that, that, that um, explains the rhythms of uh, Viking campaigns in the West as well, because it's when the silver mines in, uh, in Yemen uh, and in Central Asia dry up, that they then start to refocus their attention on 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 England, which by this point also has a kind of very silver based economy. Yeah, um, and also because it's easier in some ways. I mean, if you can get silver flooding in, that's that's more immediate than getting land. I mean, land is great in England if you can get it. Um, but you're right. I think I think we have to see the east and western things sort of in parallel. That obviously, the, while the when when the, whenever that eastern route is kind of cut off for some reason or there's a diminution in the trade then you see a kind of intensification of the sort of western attacks yeah but anyway yeah well um, but it's just it's just so, so you get that the salmonid emirs in central asia discover these vast silver mines uh i think in kind of 890s so um end of the ninth century and over the the, the first half of the 10th century silver is flooding in from there and that of course is the period where in the west you know the english state is able to to construct itself yeah. the fight back against the vikings so presumably, and his, yeah, and his successors. presumably because actually there's so much money to be made in the east that 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 becomes the main focus of attention yeah um and then after about 965 the silver mines in the east dry up and so uh Berka gets abandoned towards the end of the 10th century and you start to get Vikings moving back towards England, Ethelred the Unready and Svein Fortbeard and so on. So I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, we tend not to think of that, you know, the, 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 the rhythms of the, you know, the emergence yeah. of the English state and then the return of the Vikings to a degree is being conditioned by the availability of silver in the East. Okay, we'll just take a quick break, Tom, and we'll come back after the ads. 
So, so one last question on this um, issue of contacts with Baghdad, Tom. Um, Diogo Morgado has an excellent question. Vikings and Arabs, clash of civilizations or trade-based contacts? Does Islam have any influence in the decline of Norse polytheism? Well, I don't have an answer to the second half. The first half, I would say, not really a clash of civilizations. I mean, we have some really, really interesting things written by Arabs about the Norse and saying, you know, they're, they're very dirty or they, they have weird customs and so on. Maybe we'll come to that. But I would say it's more trade, fascination, um, exchange and so on. But you'll have your own answer. What do you think? Well, I th- I, um, the, the question of whether visitors to the, to the caliphate, you know, are influenced by Muslim. Do, do, do they become, do some of them become Muslim? Do they bring Muslim brides back? I mean, the evidence, so there's, there's um, the grave of a woman in Sweden was found who had a, a ring with um, kind of invocation of Allah. Yes. On the ring. Yeah. Uh, and various textiles have been found again with kind of uh, Quranic phrases woven into it. Um, the woman herself seems to have, have come from the Islamic world. Whether you, uh, I mean, whether, whether the fact that you have Quranic messages on your robes means that you've become a Muslim, I- I'm not sure about that. So because it's surely it, unlikely. Surely it's just well, a high because, status, because, luxurious. Well, because famously also there's a Buddha was found, wasn't it, in a yeah. grave. And um, that doesn't imply they're Buddhists. And they're a kind of the crozier from, a, you know, from Ireland. Um, they're, they're basically kind of garnering loot. But I would have thought it wasn't beyond the bounds of possibility that um, the caliphs were kind of sending missionaries to try and convert at least some of these barbarians. That's what they were they were doing. Um so who knows? Who knows? It's it's a very kind of interesting question. But Tom, that raises a really, really interesting set of stories. So we do know that there are lots of people who are, you know, Arabs and or Arab messengers, envoys and so on. Ibn Rusta, for example, Miskawaya. Um that I'm sure my, my Arabic's not quite that good. Uh, Ibn Kurdabhib. Um, and, um, yeah. and apologies to listeners for the, uh, Tom doesn't have the courage to do these fantastic Arabic voice, um, voices, but I do. Uh, but the most famous one is Ibn Fadlan. So Ibn Fadlan um, is, I mean, this is the story that basically anyone who's interested in the Vikings in the East is familiar with. He is a an envoy stroke missionary who is sent by the Abbasid Caliph al-Muqtadir to go to the Volga, to the people who live on the Volga, who are Turkic people called the Bulgars. So they're not the kind of Slav Bulgarians that we think of now. They are, they're living on the Volga in what's now Tatarstan. And Ibn Fadlan has been sent there basically as, as, a, as, a, as a diplomat, stroke missionary, to build him a mosque. And when he gets there, he finds a load of Vikings. Vikings, yeah. yeah. And he's quite struck by them, isn't he? I mean, he's quite impressed by them. He says they're as tall as date palms, blonde and ruddy. And he's very impressed they've got by their weapons and their kit and stuff. But he's also, they are the filthiest of Allah's creatures. They do not wash after shitting or peeing, nor after sexual intercourse, and do not wash after eating. They are like wayward donkeys. Yeah. So he sort of thinks of them in a very, you know, they're barbarians, basically, to him, aren't they? They are, in a kind of weird way, noble savages, I suppose. Impressive tall, strong, self-confident and so on, but also weird and a bit unsettling. And he's obviously a really interesting guy because he's curious. So he says he hears that one of their chiefs has died Yeah, and they're going to have this massive funeral. He's like, oh, can I come and... (laughs) He makes the worst decision of his life. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's an amazing decision. He says, I'd like to come and watch. Yes. uh, So so, um, in, in Baghdad, when the Vikings turn up, 
they pretend to be Christian. Um, and they have to do that because, because if you're a follower of the book, then, uh, you, you, you know, you, you can get in um, by paying a, a, a kind of tax. Whereas if you're a pagan, you can't. The thing that's interesting about this, um, this, this burial is that it's unapologetically pagan. You know, there's no pretense about it being Christian whatsoever. Um, and the fascination of that for archaeologists is, you know, when they dig up the ship burials or whatever, and they find kind of various dismembered animals and um, the skeletons of women and things inside it, it's very difficult. You know, you've got the... Uh, you've got the hardware, but you don't have the software. Ibn Fidlan's account provides the software that otherwise we simply wouldn't have. Yeah. And also he, he provides quite good ammunition for people who say when these guys went East, they were still very much Scandinavians because this is a Scandinavian, an identifiable Scandinavian funeral ritual that is taking place. I mean, God knows how many hundreds of miles away on the Volga in what is now the absolute kind of, Russian heartland and he how long does it take Tom is it take uh, 10 days doesn't it? it takes 10 days to get ready for this funeral I mean it is the most colossal blowout basically presided well, over by a sinister old woman called the angel of death I saw she was a witch thick-bodied and sinister <laughs> it's a super fat line he's he's he's, he's fattest unfortunately <laughs> and, and barbarianist <laughs> yeah he's not impressed by the angel of death at all I mean frankly with your name like that you're asking for oh, for well, disobliging commentary <laughs> but so it yeah I mean it's um you wouldn't you wouldn't want I think to be a female slave um in the vicinity of the angel of death because you, you wouldn't that is no. for, that is for sure so someone has to accompany uh, the dead viking chief to the afterlife and so um they ask for a volunteer and actually interest doesn't have to be a woman it could be could be a a, a yeah. boy as well but it's but it's a girl who volunteers so they've lined them all up haven't they and there's people so the guy's ship has been propped up on the shore with with wood yeah, his kind of half half buried. Is that right? I think, I think something like that. Is it half buried? His... So, un, un, yeah. So it's half kind of they've 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 heaped earth over half of it so that you then go in. That's right. Yeah. But the other half is outside. They've 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 divvied up his the the dead guy's fortune three ways. So a third of it is spent on booze, unbelievably, <laughs> which is great, isn't it? A third of it it's is spent like kind on, of death duties on 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 special kind of funeral gear. So on other funeral stuff like his burial clothes, and then the remaining third is split up among his his heirs, basically. Um, so they've there's this massive kind of festival atmosphere, and they get the slaves together and they say, "Which one of you volunteers?" And Ibn Fadlan watches, kind of fascinated. He's got an interpreter with him who's explaining what's going on. And this girl steps forward. She's a teenager, I think. It's yeah. pretty clear she's a teenager. Whether she is coerced or whether she steps forward voluntarily is unclear. I would say. Tom, but, but she, she, um, having volunteered, she's then treated like a kind of princess, and she gets given slaves. She has clothes and jewels. She and gets all clothes sorts. and jewels, and she gets given kind of drugs. I think for ten days, for the ten days of the build-up, she's expected to keep sleeping with the guys. Pals, all the, yeah, and the, the the guys who are who are who are raping her say, I, you know, I'm doing this because I loved your master. So it yeah. seems, you know, very peculiar. Very peculiar. And there's kind of a weird thing where she she goes to something that that looks like a door frame. That's on the last day, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so on the last day, the tenth day, they set up a sort of a bed on the deck of the boat with this guy's probably <laughs> by now in quite putrid, rank. rotting corpse <laughs> in bed, dressed in these fancy clothes, and they lay out a huge feast around his body. Then they bring out the girl. 
the girl by now has been clearly she's been very heavily drugged and given booze and stuff um then they bring a dog to the ship and they cut a dog in half the dog in half and they throw both halves of the dog on board i mean it's so strange um they put all the guys weapons in the cabin they tear the heads off some chickens yeah even fadlan at this point is thinking God, <laughs> this was a very bad decision but the, to the go and watch bit, this funeral. The, the door frame. Yeah, they lift she, her up. They she, lift her up, and she says she can see her father and her mother. Then they lift her up again, and she sees all her family. And then the third time she says that she sees her master in the afterworld, and it's green, and it's beautiful, and there are all kinds of yeah. men. Then they, and, they and take off her, her jewels. And they, she walks onto the deck of the ship. But this is a weird detail. She walks on the raised palms. So she's being held up in a sort of, you know, mosh pit style scenario by the men with whom she's previously had sex. So they all kind of, they hoist her onto the ship. Um, she sings a, a leave-taking song. And then they make her drink two big kind of flasks of, of beer, I assume, or, yeah. or something. Um, and then at this point... So even Fadline at this point, his story, which is pretty dark, becomes genuinely very dark because he says at this point she's confused and she's crying out and she doesn't want to carry on or whatever. But the angel, yeah, the angel of death at this point grabs her and sort of they drag. What do they do? They drag her into a little cabin. At this point, everybody's they're all beating their beating on their shields, beating on their shields. It's such a terrible scene to to drown out the screams, right? That that she's giving. Then here's what's – if this isn't disturbing enough, apologies to – if you've got children listening, I, this is probably – why are they still listening? <laughs> they should definitely stop listening at this point because they force her down on the bed next to the body of this guy. Then they all have set, rape her again, and then four of the men hold her down, and two others strangle her while the angel of death is stabbing her with a knife. Even Fadline is watching all this. And one of the guys standing next to him says, God, you have terrible rituals in the caliphate, don't you? I mean, compared with this, this is brilliant. You must be absolutely – and you can sort of tell from his account that he's thinking, this is, this is pretty awful. Yeah. It's a really weird – I think it's so weird, isn't it? It's such a weird story. And, and it's sort of – uh, you get this so much from Neil Price's books that our image of kind of Viking religion is all very kind of jolly and it's kind of Thor and his hammer and Odin and all well, this stuff. But I, I, actually I'm, this I'm, is the darkness. I'm and not the sure about that. It. I mean, all the, um, all the, all the main gods are, are, are kind of terrifyingly phallic. Yeah. But the way in which it's, it's portrayed to children, Tom, and the way it's presented. I suppose. Sort of I suppose. Version of you know, but, but, but Thor, I mean, Thor is a, a serial rapist. Um, the hammer is obviously very phallic yeah uh, odin is always raping uh yeah. frey i mean he has you know the statue of him at Uppsala in, in sweden he has an absolutely enormous phallus um yeah it's unsettling i think and this story is incredibly i mean it's it's unbelievably rich and interesting for historians archaeologists anthropologists and so on because it ma- makes sense of a lot of the burials that you find yeah. All those kind of dismembered corpses of of animals and yeah, yeah, exactly, and the weird things you find. Um, but it gives you a sense of you know the sort of the the the, the jolly adventure story in Rosemary Sutcliffe kind of way in which so many of these Viking mm. stories are told. 
actually misses out just how cruel and violent a world uh, and strange and, un- and and unsettling a world it was. Anyway, well, I, I you know, and I think I think that um, I, you know, you know what I'm going to say now that um, it's about cricket. The the, the the conversion of the Vikings to Christianity is it, it removes them from a world that I think to us is unimaginably strange. Yeah, because we fair. remain in the in the kind of the, the the moral, ethical world that Christianity gave gave us, um, you know, or you know, Islam as well. I mean, they're they're you know, Ibn Fadlan's sense of of kind of the sense of the strangeness and the horror of it is is to that extent ours, and and that world to us, I think, is very very remote and difficult and strange and and weird, yeah. and so the process by which um, the Rus end up becoming Christian is very very kind of important uh, as, as that passage from from putin that i read at the start of this episode okay well i think i think that that's enough for today's episode and and clearly we <laughs> we, th- we thought we were going to get all this done in one episode we're not um i think that that uh, tomorrow we should um we should go to the Dnieper. we should go to the founding of kiev we should look at um in a bit more detail the relationship of the rus to constantinople and the process by which um the kievan rus became christian so we will see you back tomorrow. Bye. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. The story goes that in the year 860, the Chuds, the Slavs, the Krivichians and the Ves, people who live in what we now know as Russia, had fallen out among themselves and needed somebody to rule them. So they turned to the Vikings. Our land is great and rich they supposedly said, but there is no order in it. Come to rule and reign over us. And the person who accepted that offer was a man called Rurik, one of three brothers, Rurik, Sinius, and Truvor. Very close to Trevor, weirdly. Rurik. <laughs> you, you couldn't take a Viking chieftain. <laughs> Seriously, Trevor. Trevor. Rurik established himself in a place which we now know as Novgorod, and his successors later moved to Kiev. And it's from that story that the countries of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine all trace their history. Tom, we did the um, origins of the Vikings in the East yesterday. Do you think there's any truth to this story at all? Well, I think um, the obvious parallel with this, uh, if you are um, in Britain, is, is with the Dukes of Normandy which likewise has a kind of almost mythic origin story. So Rollo. it's Rollo, uh, who is given this land by, uh, by the Frankish king. And all kinds of myths surround this figure. Uh, yeah. I mean, he, he probably existed, but... He probably it, wasn't called Rollo, though, was he? No. Um, um, Tom Shippey, in his book about the Vikings, calls him Ganga Rolf, um, <laughs> which I think is a much better name. Uh, yes, um, and all kinds of, and so there are all kinds of stories about how he he founds Normandy and about how the original Normans are not just Vikings, but they're people from you know all, all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, and he establishes this uh, this duchy, and um, the question of whether you know William the Conqueror, the most famous of the Dukes of Normandy, um, is he a Viking? Is he French? Uh, you know, what is he exactly? I think that that sheds a kind of really interesting light on the process of state formation. Uh, in Novgorod, but even more particularly in Kiev. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously the, the background to this, uh, as in the West, so in the East, it's about the way that the Vikings are moving into strange lands, as establishing Viking polities 
that nevertheless take on the lineaments of the lands and the cultures and the peoples that they're settling among. Well, that's a very controversial subject, though, isn't it? Because how much that's the case is kind of bitter, has been bitterly contested by academics. How, how Viking are they? For those people who didn't listen to yesterday, I can't believe there was anybody who didn't listen to yesterday's podcast. But we did the sort of first hundred years. So um, the Vikings have been what we, th- I mean, Vikings is actually the wrong word because they're not really. The Rus. Yeah, the raiding, the Rus as they. The rowers. Um, have been coming largely from Sweden, down the rivers from the Baltic and establishing this trading network, which is going to start to take on, as Tom said, it's not just the lineaments of the culture around it, but the lineaments of a state. And how, how yeah. quickly it does that is, is again, debatable. So the sort of origin story that's told is that the, which is very flattering, by the way, to the Scandinavian self-esteem, it's a, you could say as a kind of slightly colonial story, is that the surrounding peoples are so shambolic and kind of disorganized and backward. They are falling out among themselves, and they have to ask the Vikings, the Rus, to come in and, and rule them. And there might be some element of truth in that, don't you think, Tom, that they that they might, you know, appeal to these armed guys in their trading posts to come and help them against a rival clan or a rival tribe and and that's how it starts do you think well i think it's it's failing the kind of the brute process by which i think pretty clearly what happens is that you you as we said in the the early episode you know these to begin with are trading ventures and so you have to have transit posts you have to have places where you can not just um do deals, not just store things ready for when the rivers become navigable, but also to kind of pick up information. You know, you, yeah. you can't survive without that. Uh, and we drew the parallel yesterday with um, trading posts in, say, Canada in uh, the 18th century. Um, but it's pretty clear that, that that before long, these transit posts become forts. Yeah, wooden and, forts. Basically. And once they've become forts, then you can do what the Vikings are doing in in um, in the West as well which is basically to kind of set up protection rackets. So what's been a cartel becomes a kind of mafia-style operation, yeah. uh, and you're charging protection money. Uh, and if Rurik existed, uh, and there is a kind of historically tested Rurik at around this time, I think, it attested in Scandinavia, but yeah, that's right. whether it's the same in person Sweden, or not I think. Is, is debated. But um, but if he existed, I think you could imagine him as the kind of the equivalent of a mafia boss. Um, yeah. And then... Uh, you know, again, as as happens in 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 the West, Normandy being the obvious example, um, a kind of uh, a protection racket becomes a state. Well, let's. So we know so little about Rurik. We know that he established him, himself in in Novgorod, which we talked about yesterday, uh, and there's a statue of him to this day. In, and this is uh, the second half of the ninth century. Yeah, this is uh, it was eight sixty, I think it is. Is it? Yeah, yeah about eight sixty to eight sixty two are the are the dates given. And so, by the way, we haven't really talked about sources. This is coming from a, an incredible source called the Russian Primary Chronicle, which is, as is so often the way, written <laughs> in the twelfth century. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Written at least two hundred, three hundred years later um, by a monk called Nestor, I think, and you know is is written in very different kind of political and cultural circumstances. So we, as with so much of yeah. early medieval history, we just don't know whether these are legends, whether there is a, a grain of truth in them, uh, whether it's retrospective kind of legitimizing. I think there must be a grain of truth because I think that the, the idea of, of a kind of dynastic descent from Rurik becomes quite important. So, you know, if Rurik didn't exist, someone of the same name must have 
But yeah, well, someone of the same. But but the whole thing, Rurik and two brothers. Yeah, I mean, maybe that not the two of, brothers. All that, all that sort of stuff. But Trevor. there's clearly a, 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 a dynasty establishes itself in Novgorod. Yeah, that will then expand. Yeah, so there's two guys who are, it says in the Russian Primary Chronicle, two men who do not belong to Rurik's kin, but were boyars. That's the kind of Russian. They're basically um, captains. I don't know what the word is. Uh, they're not nobles. I mean, nobles is the wrong word, but they're sort of, they're, 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 they're members of the gang, would you say? Soldiers, yeah. I guess, is what Mafia would yeah. say. Yeah. And they basically go off. They're called, in the, the Russian Primary Chronicle has them as Askold and Deer. And as with so many of these names, almost all the names we're talking about, they're, they're slavicized versions of originally Norse names, aren't they? Because I think they were Huskulder and Duri, uh, the original, my beautiful, yeah, absolutely yeah, impeccable yeah, old Norse pronunciation there, Tom, I hope you noticed. They go off down the Dnieper and they come to what they, the Chronicle says is a city on a hill. Again, a little bit too kind of folktale stroke biblical, I think. For but Anyway, this place is Kiev and it already exists. Uh, been set up by somebody called Key. Hence <laughs> um, <laughs> the and name. Ev. Yeah. <laughs> and Askol and Deer supposedly settle in Kiev and say, this is a great place. I mean, obviously it's a good place because it's further down the river, or further yeah, towards uh, Constantinople. So it kind of makes sense that they've established another fort stroke trading station that becomes their own little polity. And so the question of whether Kiev is Viking, which, you know, Putin's been worrying about this, so it's it's a topical question. But again, would you, would you think that maybe you know there'd be a parallel perhaps with York, Jorvik? Uh, you know, it's it's a pre-existing settlement, uh, gets taken over by the Vikings, gets a Viking name, mm-hmm. uh, the Vikings rule it, and then they gradually get absorbed into the fabric of of what we, uh, you know returns to being an English city. That perhaps there's, a, 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 I mean, the parallels are never exact, but there's something there. Yeah, of what's well, happening in, I mean, in, I think in, in the east with, as well as the west. Your parallel with Normandy was a really good one. I think to people at the time, sort of ninth, tenth century people, our attempts to fix labels on them would seem weird, wouldn't they? They would yeah. be, say, "Well, who cares? I mean, what what what's it to you? What ethnicity?" That the concept wouldn't make an enormous amount of sense to them. So the question of you know, are they Slavs? Are they Scandinavian? Are they Russians? Ukrainians? I mean. In a sense, it, they're, they're, it's a very, very anachronistic question. I mean, what matters to them is who's who's got the, the weapons, the power, the money. What they are the is shots. lads. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute lads. And they are. But I don't think they're the Bullingdon lads, Tom. I think no, they're much more. No, they're much more predatory and brutal. Because yeah. they, um, so, so um, Askold and Deer, they're these pair of kind of Viking adventurers, um, the kin of Rurik, his descent, you know, his his heirs, if they exist, they're moving in. Yeah. And they're, they're like the kind of, you know, the, the, the bigger crime family moving in and they, they take over Kiev and Kiev opens up the access to the Black Sea and beyond the Black Sea lies Miklagard, Constantinople. Yeah, which we haven't talked about at all, which is enjoying a, it's a renaissance, isn't it? We're in the, Mas- are we not in the Macedonian renaissance at this point, Tom? So things, um, yeah, things are, things are looking up for the Byzantines. For- yeah, so they they still think of themselves as Romans, don't they? They, do. they still yeah, call well, themselves yes. the Romanoi. Um, they yeah. are, they absolutely think we are Rome. We are the, and they have this massive city. They have tons of money. They're a very rich and sophisticated culture. And then one day in the year eight sixty, they they kind of look out of the window and these, as you said, <laughs> these lads, lads. <laughs> in their turned, ships have turned up in their in their ships and. Um, 
the 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 patriarch, the Archbishop of Fot- of Constantinople, a man called Photius, has written this famous description of this. He says, "The uh, Rus are an obscure nation, a nation of no account, a nation ranked among slaves, unknown, which has won a name from their expedition against us." So basically. Well, the shocking thing for the people of Constantinople is that these utter nobodies who they regard as so far beneath them turn up and and um, besiege their city. And they keep doing this, don't they? Uh, and they, they, they seem to have very good intelligence because they invariably turn up when the imperial fleet is away. Yeah, or the emperor's um, off campaigning against yeah. somebody else. So, exactly. so the walls the walls of Constantinople are a great wonder. Um, they, they are impregnable. But there are obviously all kinds of churches and monasteries, you know, as as in uh, England, that are kind of lying exposed. And the Vikings have all kind of fun with them, don't they? They um, they use monks as for archery practice. Yeah, and they, they, they nail hats on to the heads of priests and Very all kinds form. of badinage. Very <laughs> so we have a question from, um, would you believe, Tom, we've got a question from Neville Chamberlain. Uh, Neville Chamberlain says, were there any attempts by the Vikings to take over Byzantium in the same way they tried with England and Ireland. Neville, of course, his reaction would no doubt be to to um, to a piece faraway country, of, yeah, which we, which know, we nothing. know nothing. Um, and my answer to that would be: it's completely implausible they would ever take over yeah. Constantinople. There's, I mean, there's never... one of them, isn't there, who nails his shield to the gates of Constantinople as a kind of gesture of contempt because he obviously sees the walls as a kind of cheat. Yeah, but he knows that, that they're never going to break in. I mean, it's like saying, you know. Uh, Will Paraguay ever defeat the United States and conquer its territory? I mean, it's just not—it's not a plausible matchup. Um, I think I mean, so. So, Miklagard, the great city. It's—it's it's, Constantinople comes to kind of shimmer in the imaginings of all the Vikings so much that essentially the the Asgard, the city of the gods, comes to be equated with it. Yeah. So that when they imagine what Odin's halls look like, they imagine it looking very like the Golden City of Caesar. Don't they? Don't they also, Tom? Um, there are some people who think that when they talk about Asgard or they talk about Valhalla, that images of Hagia Sophia, the Church of the Holy Wisdom, um, this yeah. incredible building, the biggest building in the Western world, I guess at this point, um, which we'll come to. Yeah, that, that it plays they an are part in this story. The gold, the mosaics, yeah. the just the sort of that that creates a lot of the images of because the images that we have of Valhalla of Asgard. Or all, all come later, don't they? They're all centuries yeah. after this, and, and, anyway. and seem to kind of echo Constantinople. And I think exactly. I think the other difference. So, so there's no prospect of them capturing Constantinople, but I think also what what the Byzantine Empire can exert, which England or Ireland or or even the, the Frankish Empire can't do, is to kind of generate this incredible cultural cringe, because they, you know, every so often they're allowed. You know, they they, they um. It's actually with Constantine the Seventh, isn't it? Who we mentioned uh, in the, the the previous episode, the emperor who describes this uh, the, the rapids that the yeah. uh, that the Rus have to negotiate, um, and he kind of concludes a treaty that specifies, you know, where they what, what they can trade, when they can trade, how they have to behave when they come, and they're kind of bringing in their walrus tusks and their narwhal <laughs> tusks and their amber and their beeswax and all kinds of stuff. Um, and they're also providing for uh, what becomes very famous, uh, a guard of what are called Varangians. Yeah. And and the Varangian, a, a var is a vow. It's kind of um, they're, they're, they're like sort the, of the oath the, the takers, would that be? The, the oath takers. And so they, they, they come to provide the emperor with his guard. And so the links, 
essentially the Kievan Rus start to to be absorbed into the kind of the cultural tractor beam of Byzantine culture. Well, that's where I would say, Tom, I'm sure you, I, I don't think this is a controversial view at all. That's a, that's the point at which they, they, they stop being the Scandinavians who are known as the Rus and they start becoming the ancestors of of yeah, of Russia. Ukraine and Russia. Or, yeah, because they're yeah. brought in, they're, they're brought into the world of orthodoxy, of Byzantine church architecture, of all those kind. They're they're, they're beginning to kind of contract marriage alliances and trade deals and all this sort of stuff, and that brings them. You know, what do they care about? What's going on in Norway? I mean, yeah, yeah, and and so um, so so by the mid tenth century, you get the, fir- the the first ruler of Kiev. Um, I'm going to have a go at this, Sviatoslav. Uh, so he's the first ruler to have um, Slavic name. Slavic name, but before him, you've had various rulers who have more obviously Norse names. So we had uh, we had um, uh, Asgold and Deer with the guys yeah. who seized Kiev, but then that gets seized from them by um, a guy called Oleg. That's right. Who is the guardian of Rurik's son Igor? Yeah, suppose so. Rurik is definitely Scandinavian, and Oleg is also definitely Scandinavian because Oleg, which we always think of as a Russian name, is actually Helgi. I think, yeah, just like Olga is is. Helga. So Helgi, or as we call him, Oleg, he's the guardian. That's right. He's the guardian of Igor. And Oleg is a very impressive man, generally. He takes over Kiev. He seizes it from Asgold and Deer. He leads another siege of Constantinople and gets a, a, a ton of money from sort of Dane. So this is your parallel with the West, actually. He gets basically Danegeld yeah. from um, the sort of Byzantine authorities in 904. But he has a most they have very good deaths, the um, the Grand Princes of Kiev. <laughs> so he has a, a, a very interesting death. He has it, he's been told Oleg that um, his favourite horse will be the cause of his death. So do you know what um, do you know what Oleg does, Tom? Tell me. He sends the horse away. He says, you know, I don't want to kill it, but because it's my favourite horse, but send it away and look after it, and I'll never have any dealings with it again. And after four years, in the year nine fourteen. He um he goes to see he goes to visit the horse, and because um, he misses it so badly, it's so sad. He goes to visit the horse at the stables, and he's told by the stable hands, "Well, the horse is dead." And he says, ha, 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 "You know, cheated those, fate. Those astrologers were absolute muppets. You know, I, I I've cheated death exactly." And he says, um, "Bring to, to show my contempt for these these soothsayers. Bring me the skull of the horse." So they bring him the horse's skull, and um. He, he stamps on it. He said, he's shouting, um, the horse is dead, but I am still alive. I was supposed to receive my death from this skull. And he stamps on the horse, on the horse's skull. And at that point, a snake crawls out from the horse's skull, bites him, and he dies. There you go. So the very act of defying the, um, yeah. the prophecy is what kills him. But, yeah. So, so he was guardian for Igor. Yeah, so Igor then, is, um, so Igor, then takes over. Igor has uh, an even better death. He, yeah, he has a very unfortunate death, doesn't he? So, so Igor is Igor is the guy who negotiates the treaty with Constantine the Seventh because he, he's attacked them and been seen off with Greek fire, hasn't he? Is yes, that he where has. First, yeah. use Greek fire, yeah. Uh, which is what? Which is he? he well, he twice. I mean, he does besiege Constantinople. He doesn't just attack, you know, with ships. He he actually tries to take the city twice. Yeah. Um, and he basically he's a very very kind of expansionist guy. So he's also um, it, it's um, in his reign that they all go off and, and um, pl- plunder all the kind of Muslim cities on the Caspian Sea. 
Oh yes, that's right. Um, they go to Azerbaijan, don't they? they go to Azerbaijan. So he's he's all over the place. I mean, he's he's uh, he's very keen on um, kicking sand in people's face. Yeah. And one of the people that he he kicks sand in uh, the face of is a, a people called the Drevlians, yeah. who are Slavic people, and they capture him. They pull down two birch trees, and they tie him to the ends of these two trees, and then they let the two birch trees go. So he goes bang. <laughs> And he gets split in two. And that's the oh, end of him. Gosh. However, this is not a sensible thing to have done. It's now, not true, actually, coming Dominic. Cent- Dominic. It's, it's not true, that story. Dominic. Now, <laughs> center stage comes possibly the most interesting of all the rulers of Kiev, who is um, the, the wife of Igor and the mother of Sviatoslav, as he'll become. He will you know, become this, this, this ruler. But she is ruling as... as uh, regent Olga Helga yeah she's very you've got a bit of a torn dress for Olga I think I really have <laughs> I really have she's she's kind of the Athelflaed of the east but she's uh, much more she, um, she's very robust in yeah. her approach to the Drevlians yeah so, so they're so they're basically so the, they're, they're Slavs aren't they? they're the tree people because yeah. Drevlo is tree in Russian so presumably that's where the story of the, uh, the trees comes the from. birch trees but also apparently from. the chronicler was ripping off um Theseus, yeah, D- Diodorus or some Greek. Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's a, yeah. yes, yeah. <laughs> but but who so cares? like a lot of these stories, <laughs> like, like basically everything in this podcast, possibly, possibly didn't happen. <laughs> so, so, so the Drevlians are obviously a bit nervous. <laughs> at, at whether um, you know Olga is going to be, you know, what's her reaction going to be? So they send um, a, an embassy to her, and uh, she puts them on a ship and buries them alive. Yeah, well, they've they, you know what they send the embassy to saying, "Would you like to marry yeah. our leader, Prince Mal?" <laughs> uh, which is a which is an extraordinary thing to do. The way they've treated her previous husband, yeah, she's foolish. Throws, she buries them alive, doesn't she? Put the throws On them a ship. in a pit. So a, a bit like the, we we had Ibn Fadlan's account of the uh, the ship burial. Yeah, she seems to have done that, but they were alive. Um, and but, I think she kind of taunts them as the soil is being flooded. But then that's them. just the first of because she yes, she is. she has three revenges, doesn't she? So another they, they then send another embassy because the first embassy hasn't returned. Yeah, I mean, it's so stupid. What happened to those guys? <laughs> yeah, we'll send well, another embassy. Let's send another one. <laughs> so so Olga burns them alive. That's right in the bathhouse. She in says, bath "Go house. and have a wash." Yeah. <laughs> and sets so obviously fire. their standards of hygiene have improved by this point. Yeah, clearly. Um. And then she goes and besieges the city where Igor was killed. And the story is, is that she besieges him for a year. And finally, she, she accepts that she's not going to capture it. So she, um, she negotiates a treaty with them and demands a kind of, um, you know, a, a very small tribute just as a kind of sign of their submission. And she demands three sparrows and Dominic, three pigeons. And you've been mocking the idea that we're going to be doing a podcast on pigeons. But this is a kind of interesting example of how pigeons have played an important role in world history. I think you're underestimating the number of sparrows she asks for. I think it, she asks for three sparrows from each household. Yeah, so each household have to give yeah. her a tribute. Not, of, from, the, of, not from the city, generally. No, 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 no yes. So, so each, each household has to give a tribute of three, three sparrows and three pigeons. And they do this, and she then sets them on fire. They dive bomb the city. It bursts into flames. She bursts in and kills everybody. It's a great story. Do you think that happened, Dom? <laughs> I mean, well, do you think that's well, a, a plausible? <laughs> well, well, there's a story uh, th- that this happened in um, uh, during the War of Simon de Montfort against Henry the Third. The whole sparrow carry on again. Uh, th- it was a cock. 
Right. But they 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 set, they set fire to London. I with a, think with a burning cock. I I, um, I think obviously this is all from the Russian primary chronicle, isn't it? So which I think is so clearly based on kind of previous models. Um, but I think it's a good story. So let's not question it. Let's assume it definitely. Okay. Happened. So 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 Olga robust in her approach to um, the murderers of her husband, but, but also the a saint is a yes. saint. <laughs> yes. So she, so she um, and it's again a sign of the the, the growing influence of, of Byzantine culture and civilization that she converts to Christianity and and gets um, the the baptismal name of Helena, which was the uh, the name of the mother of Constantine, who'd founded Constantinople. Um, and uh, her son doesn't convert, but she's allowed to, to you know, serve as a patron of Christianity in Kiev. So she goes to Constantinople, does she, to talk to Constantine the Seventh, the guy who wrote the manual Porphyrogenitus? Uh, and he, there's some talk of them marrying, but and they don't marry, but she converts, and she comes back with a load of vases. It said in the uh, chronicle, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but it's interesting because. And this is one of those things that kind of makes a mockery of our attempts to fix labels on on these people. Because she is, as you say, a Christian, but her son, Sviatoslav, he is still a rampaging a, pagan. A pagan. She has a Scandinavian name, Helga. He has a Slavic name. Um, but there's no sense that this is a kind of contradiction or that this is no. some problem that needs to be resolved. It's just, you know, the, the sort of the flux and and mess of how things are yep and and he um he, he like like his dad is a great conqueror so he knocks out the khazars well he's one of the first he's the first of these people we have a physical description of a genuine physical description made by um who is it by one of the byzantines uh, leo the deacon he says he's a moderate height he's got a snub nose uh he's got a sort of bushy mustache and a shaved head but a lock of hair that hangs down on one side. That's right. He kept, yes, kind of hanging down his side, isn't it? He had an, a rather angry and savage appearance. You, you're <laughs> <course>. telling me. <laughs> yeah. um, he's got a gold earring with two pearls and a red gemstone. His clothing was white, no different from that of his companions, except in cleanliness. So he's well turned out, despite his savage appearance. And yeah, sorry, Tom, I interrupted you. He, he, he wipes the floor with the Khazars, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Uh, and is he the father of, um, well, Vladimir is Russian, Vladimir, I gather, if you're Ukrainian. Is he is, right? yeah. Um, but but again, a name that people think possibly has sort of Norse Germanic roots and it could have been Vald- Valdemar, um, mm. some kind of Norse name. But yeah, he so he attacks the Bulgars, he attacks the Khazars. I mean, you're saying that Igor is expansionist. Sviatoslav is very expansionist. Vladimir. He fights absolutely... Vladimir. No, Sviatoslav. Oh yes, yes. He's very expansionist, but he has an interesting death too, Tom. They none of them die safely in their quietly in their bed. Do you know what happens to him? Tell me. Uh, he has gone and attacked uh, Constantinople again, as you um, do. As you do. I mean, presumably, I think they're attacking Constantinople to get better trade. They're like Lord Frost. He's yes. obviously a, a listening to the to the show and presumably listening to the show an awful lot now that he's left his uh, got more time Brexit. Neg- I'm surprised he I'm disappointed he hasn't been sending in more of those excellent Danish themed questions. Um, but yeah, that they're they're presumably doing it to get tribute and to get you know money and better trade negotiations and stuff. But he's gone and attacked the Constantinople. It didn't really work out. He comes back and he ends up being ambushed at the rapids on the River Dnieper. By our old friends, the Pechenegs. Um, <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and do you know what they do to him? No, tell me. They uh, cut his head off. They um, plate it with gold, and they use it as a drinking vessel. Oh, that's so predictable. It, what's what? That's kind that's, of very. It's like that's early medieval doing Balkan, that. Balkan they're always doing formulaic that. behavior. I think tying to a tree and you know ripping them in half is much more creative. Okay, fair enough. Even if it didn't happen. Yeah, even if it didn't happen. So anyway, he he has multiple sons. They all fight each other, and the winner is um, Volodymyr. Yeah, Volodymyr. Well, it's interesting actually, Tom, because almost every book on this calls him Vladimir, which is Russian. But, but I, I've been told off by Ukrainians for for calling him Vladimir. Agreed. So Volodymyr. Uh, if you look at Sergei Ploky's book on the history of Ukraine, he calls him Volodymyr, yeah. and it's a bit like we've we've talked about Kiev. You know, and in our minds, no doubt, because we're born in the seventies, that word is spelt K I E V, not K Y I V. So, at this point, we're getting more and more into the kind of territory where everything is contested between Russian and Ukrainian. Yeah. Um, but what isn't contested is the absolute key significance of his reign, because it's in his reign yeah. that the Ukrainians, the Rus, become Christian. You call them Ukrainians. Ah, uh, well, yeah, yeah. the Rus. The Rus. Okay. Please direct all your complaints to Tom Holland, <laughs> yeah. not to me. Capel Loft, the Rus, the Russians, the Ukrainians, whatever. <laughs> so, Tom, tell us, because his conversion to Christianity is a great tale in itself, isn't it? Well, we, we've been talking about how so much of this material has a kind of folkloric dimension to it. Yeah. Uh, and in the previous episode, we talked about the Khazars, about how, um, you know, they, they can't decide whether to become Christian or Jewish or. Muslim. And there's a very similar story told about Vladimir. He's in a world surrounded by worshippers of a single God, which, which should he convert to? Yeah. And so he, he sends emissaries to, uh, to the Muslim world, to the caliphate, uh, and they report back and say, well, you'd have to give up drink. So that's an absolute no, no. And he sends them to the, uh, the lands of the Franks and they report back and say, yeah, it's all right, but cathedrals aren't great. Uh, and then he sends them to um, Constantinople and they uh, go to Hagia Sophia, the great cathedral, and they come back and they report in awed terms. We knew not whether we were in heaven or on earth, for on earth there is no such splendor or such beauty. We only know that God dwells there among men. We cannot forget that beauty. And yeah. so this persuades Vladimir that he should go with with Orthodox Christianity, the Christianity of, of Constantinople. Now, that story is obviously completely true. Not true. Oh, Tom, don't say that. Because <laughs> those are the most famous foundational lines. I know. At the, at the centre of kind of Russian, Belarusian... But there are two obvious Ukrainian reasons why they're not true. Go on. The first is that they're, they're very familiar with Constantinople. Yeah, because they... They don't need to yeah. send emissaries out yeah. <laughs> to report back on what Hagia Sophia is like. They've, they've been there. They know that. Um, and the other is that um, this is very geopolitically determined. Of course. They're choosing a superpower, right? They're choosing, They're choosing a, a superpower, yeah. But Tom, I'm gutted that you missed out um, that they also went to visit the Bulgars on the Volga. And do you know what they said when they came back from uh, the Volga? When we journeyed among the Bulgars, we beheld how they worship in their temple called a mosque while they stand on girt. The Bulgar bows, sits down, looks hither and thither like one possessed. <laughs> and there is no happiness among them, but instead only, <laughs> only sorrow <laughs> and, and a dreadful stench. <laughs> That's not. You wouldn't choose that religion, would you? No, you wouldn't. 
you wouldn't go for that one. <laughs> Not the stench. Um, so, yeah, apologies to any, uh, well, Bulgarians and Bulgars now. Bulgarian Muslims. Yeah. Um, but you get, you get, you know, I mean, the great incense in Hagia Sophia. No so, stench there. Very beautiful. So he's um, obviously choosing it as power politics, isn't he? Um, well, and the Byzantines are as well, because they offer Vladimir something that no barbarian leader has ever been offered before by Byzantine emperor. And that is marriage into the imperial family in the form of, of the emperor's um, Basil II sister, Anna. Yeah, she's not happy, is she? She's not happy at all. Uh, she apparently um, is, very cro- is very cross about it. And there's some sort of breakdown in negotiations because he has to actually attack uh, the Crimea in order to. Well, that's to where it all happens, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, so the Crimea, which is obviously uh, very, you know, it's in the, the, the crosshairs of current politics. Um, the Crimea matters um, to both Ukrainians and Russians today because it's where um, Vladimir is baptized and then marries uh, marries Anna. Yeah, and he has a weird thing where he he has a, in the at the sort of at the baptism he has all the old idols cast down and he ties. There's an idol of somebody called Perun who was made of wood and had a golden moustache. And he's tied to a horse's tail and dragged down a hill. And then Volodymyr gets 12 men to beat him with cudgels as a sort of sign, you know, I'm rejecting the old gods and embracing a new one. Um, but it's also, I mean, obviously it's a two-way process, isn't it? Because as you said, the the Varangian guard, it's, it's, it's not Volodymyr who sends the Varangian, the big, the big contingent that become the Varangian guard to Constantinople. Because that's part of the treaty with uh, with Basil. Yeah, yeah. The Basil will get. What I, I, you would assume, wouldn't you, that they must have had Varangian mercenaries in their army before they had the official, the official guard that Harold Hardrada ends up being the commander. So Harold Hardrada is is. I mean, in a way, he's the kind of the end of the story, the end point of the story, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll we'll talk um, Harold Hardrada and, uh, and and really the, the end of the Viking Age. Okay. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are reaching the end of the Viking Age, which we've told entirely through a focus on the Vikings in the East. And the the last and most famous Viking character, I think, certainly in England, uh, to have been eastward bound is Harold Hardrada, who we know as the man who lost the Battle of Stamford Bridge, um, but had the most extraordinary life and career before that, didn't he, Tom? He really did, and um, we've we've been focusing in the on the first part of this episode on the uh, the, the princes of, of Kiev, um, this kind of emergent Rus state. But all along, up in Scandinavia, you've still got kind of Viking adventurers who are treating these eastern lands as places that you can kind of retreat to if you need to. Yeah, also um, places to make money, basically, and bring back yeah. tons of silver. So Har- Har- Harold. Um, Harold Sigurdsson, he's the the brother of of um, Olaf Sigurdsson, Olaf the Stout, who will become uh, Saint Olaf, the patron saint of Norway. Um, and he he's he's briefly been king. He messes up. He gets killed uh, and yeah. supposedly martyred. The battle um, called Sticklerstad, um, uh, which Harold is at because Harold is a teenager, I think, at that yeah. battle. Isn't he? He's about fifteen or so. Yeah, and he has to go into exile. And and that his and he goes and, to Novgorod. And this is Tom actually for those people who are who have found this all a bit sci-fi because it's lots of weird names and stuff. 
Um, their big antagonist is Knut, famous for wave turn, attempting <laughs> or not attempting to turn back waves. Again, something that didn't happen. Um, Friend of the show, an early um, faller uh, in the rest is history World Cup of Kings. Yeah. Kings, but I think a very impressive king. I mean, a very yes. formidable king indeed. So, king of a North Sea empire. Um, he's, he's basically taken over England after the end of Ethelred the Unready. Um, he's married to Emma from Normandy, and he's so it all the great, connects. He's everything connects. So he's the great antagonist. That basically Harold Hardrada, the young Harold Hardrada, is terrified of Canute. He flees, and he ends it, it, up. It is. I mean, it is a western, isn't it? it, yeah. it or, or a mafia story, or a science fiction story. I mean, you can see how the the patterns of these stories. Why? Why it's such a kind of great setting for an epic? It is that, absolutely. That he's absolutely. been run out of town by the you know the local cattle rustler. Yeah, but as a boy, basically as a teenager, he's got you know such a stuff of a kind of children's story. He goes off down the river. Like so many people have for what? What is it now? Two hundred and fifty years. Yeah, and he ends up in Kiev, where the successor to Vladimir, I think it is, um, Yaroslav the Wise, also known as the Lame, is now. Um, you can be well. You can be wise and lame, couldn't you? I mean, yeah. Well, he's lame to begin with, and then he's so wise that they he gets promoted. Right, that's good. So he's upwardly mobile. Yes. Yeah. If if he'd not, beaten off his brother, he's upwardly mobile, but not kind of mobile. They'd had a kind of an amazing war uh, with his brother, fratricidal war, where they, you know, they're fighting across ice-covered rivers and amazing. Yeah, the first great northern war. That's very good. So, but Harold Hardrada wasn't in that war, was he? No. So by this point, Yaroslav is the you know is the kind of the wise king, and Hardrada who's not yet Hardrada, he's just Harold Sigurdsson. The young Harold. So he pitches up and he does, he becomes basically an enforcer for Yaroslav, doesn't he? He serves in his in his guard or whatever. And and, does this. and why does he end up going further down towards Constantinople, Tom? Well, I think, I think um, he is looking to get back to Norway. Yeah. That's the ultimate aim. Uh, and, you know, Kiev's all very well. But the place where you're really going to make money is Constantinople. Yeah, so he's going down there with the aim of... He needs cash. He needs cash. Because when he... So he goes down there, he, he makes a, a tremendous success of it. Uh, and the, 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 you know, the epic, Snorri Sturluson, the epic at telling his, his adventures, uh, he fights with dragons, he marries princesses, he goes to the Holy Land, he conquers Sicily. He, he's... But he genuinely does some of these things, doesn't he? He really he does, does go to. Yeah, he goes to. He goes to Sicily with the Byzantine. I'm just reading something here that says he's a marine. He's a marine in the Byzantine fleet with a man called uh, Georgios Maniarchis. Do you know him? Is mm. he is he a eunuch? No, he's the brother of a eunuch, isn't he, or something like that? <laughs> of course, everybody is the brother of a eunuch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Harold plays a great trick on. Uh, on Maniarchies when they're in Sicily. Do you know about this trick? Remind me. It's an excellent trick. So they're discussing who about which who's going to get the best campsite for them and their part of the, the army. And they decide to draw lots. And Maniarchies marks his lot um, with a sort of a mark on it, or his thing, whatever they're using. And Harold says, well, can I, can I have a look at your lot so, so that I can mark mine in a, with it in a different way? And uh, Maniarchy says, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So they then put the both in a bag and um, <laughs> a man, another man takes the lot out and um, 
Harold takes it and he throws it in the sea. And he says, that was my lot. I'm, I've won. You know, I get the best place for my, for the, for the, <laughs> for the. <laughs> that was good fooling. <laughs> the, <laughs> I haven't finished the story. He says, that was, and, and Maniarca says, how do I know that was yours? I mean, there's no way I can know that was yours. And Harold says, well, have a look in the bag. And Maniarchis looks in the bag and he takes out the lot and it's got his mark on it. And he says, oh, it must have been yours. But of course, Harold made the same mark on his lot as no. on Maniarchis. <laughs> the lesson of that story is that Maniarchis is an absolute idiot. <laughs> I, no, I think it's a lesson that Harold's an absolute japester. Right. Well, a anyway. great one for the prank. Anyway, I mean, you're portraying him as a sort of Les Dawson figure, but actually... Les Dawson? And he's a prankster, isn't he? I mean, I don't know. He's a joker. No, he's a great barrel. <laughs> yeah, he's not a mother-in-law joke, man. No. So, uh, <laughs> no, he slapped you on the back. But he... So your, your teeth go flying out. But he then gets drawn into... He goes back to... He goes all these campaigns, goes to the Holy Land, he goes to Bulgaria... Um, uh, all sorts of campaigns. He's very, very um, highly rated by the Byzantines. They make him a, I don't, Spatharo Candidatus. I'm very glad I read that out um, correctly. He's a Spatharo Candidatus, which is a very high rank for a foreigner. Um, mm-hmm. And he's got been given a pay rise and he's the commander of the palace guard and all this, that and the other. And then he gets drawn into the the power politics. Are you familiar with all these Michaels? It, it's very, yes. I mean, it's almost impossible not to get drawn into it, isn't it? When you reach a certain level. Yeah, well, this is the thing. So Michael IV is the emperor, I think. Well, he's married to the Empress Zoe, and they have all kinds of feuding. And um, at some point, basically, Harold is told by Zoe, get the guy who's been kicked out as emperor and uh, gouge his eyes out, please. Um, mm-hmm. And he does. Mm. He, he personally, he, gouge, he can't trust his men to do it, so he um, he gouges them out. Personally. I mean, the sense you get of Harold is that he's very much the kind of guy who, you know, guy needs to have his eyes gouged out. He's going to do it. Yeah, he's he's he, um, he's hands on. <laughs> and when an emperor dies, Literally. the tradition is that the Varangians get to strip the imperial palace of all its gold. So Harold does that, and Harold actually is there for so long he gets to do that three times. So he's by by the time he heads back, he's so rich. He's incredibly rich. The Empress Zoe, who's in her sixties, quite fancies marrying him. Yeah. But she has a bad habit of murdering her husbands and gouging their eyes out. Yeah. So Harold is not keen on that. And and at some point he's locked up in a um a dungeon with a dragon, I think. Yeah, he is and he, sneak, all... he escapes. Yeah. He escapes from Constantinople. I mean, as as with so much of this, you know, how much of this is true? A little bit, I think, with him, because we've got Byzantine sources. The stuff in the sagas obviously clearly quite, you know. The same people well, who worked on the sagas that worked on the TV series Vikings, basically. The, the, I mean, the two things that are clearly true is that he comes back from Constantinople with a, a formidable fighting record. Yeah. You know, he is the hard rider, the hard ruler. Um, and also that he's unbelievably rich. Yeah. And I'm conscious money- that we've told his story in a quite shambolic way. Yeah, but I think, um, I, I think he's not the subject of this podcast. He's just an but incidental he's the character. But he's, he's the so last he of the Vikings, isn't for that. he? So we yeah. can talk, we, you know. He, he's he's got this money basically so that he can then get together a, a large army uh, and go and get back the throne of Norway, which is what he does. Which is basically in the long run. There's a lot of carry on with his brother. Is it Magnus, his half brother? They split the kingdom and Magnus dies, and Harold becomes a very very fierce and ruthless king of Norway. Hence the name ha- Hard Rider, Hard Ruler. I mean, the only thing about that is, you know, is that a career peak? Because would you rather be the captain of the guard in Constantinople or the king of Norway? I'd rather be king of Norway. Would you? 
Yeah. Because in Constantinople, you're surrounded by predatory empresses and eunuchs. Eunuchs and, yeah. But dragons. I think in Constantinople, the weather is better. The food's a hell of a lot better. There's more money. Everything is nicer. No, but you're, but, but you're not. The whole thing is to have your own, yeah, your own right. land. Yeah, I suppose it is. You're right. Uh, but and you have, of- a, you have a, <laughs> you have a slave's attitude to life. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if you're, a, you know, a- who are you for ventriloquizing there? <laughs> Harold Hardrada. Okay. I, think- I have the spirit of a Viking. Right. I think Harold, you should. Uh- you have the spirit of a eunuch. <laughs> Thanks. I'll remember that. I think Harold. Well, Hardrada, you know, truth hurts. I think <laughs> absolutely betrays yourself. Well, there. let's see what happens to Harold Hardrada, Tom. <laughs> well, he dies, but yeah. it's, you know, hero's death. So that's the perfect thing, isn't it? That that Harold Hardrada dies ten sixty six, the year that basically, you know, traditionally it's it's the kind of the, the the quietest of the Viking age, and he is is a perfect figure to to, to bring it to an end. Because he's a, di- a guy who dies in England, like so many Viking adventurers before him. Yeah. But he's made his name, he's made his money in the East. Yeah. And also because his career kind of sums up all the – he's li- he in some ways he's quite a sort of out-of-time figure, isn't he? I mean, he's, these places they- are becoming kingdoms. Yeah. You know, they are becoming more settled, uh, slightly more ordered, I suppose. They are Christian now rather than pagan. And, of course, with 1066, the Anglo-Saxon nobility go off and replace the Scandinavians as the Varangians. They do. So the, actually, um, the irony is that actually people who could have conceivably fought on opposite sides at the Battle of Stamford Bridge could well end up serving five years later but I, I in think, the same army for the Emperor Constantinople. I mean, I think that's that part of the fascination of this whole subject of the Vikings in the East is that sense of... Um, Oh, Vikings and Romans, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of people out of time running up with one another or, or, or Vikings, you know, in, uh, in the Caspian Sea. Um, it does have that kind of slight element of fantasy about well, it. Well, that's why, for example, Michael Crichton uh, wrote a book called the, the Death Eaters or something like that. I can't remember. Something, the Eaters of Light or the Eaters of something like that about um, with Ibn Fadlan as a character. And that was later adapted for the cinema as the 13th Warrior, I think. And Rosemary Sutcliffe has written about it, and Henry Treese. Henry Treese, yeah, the road to Mickleyard. Exactly, you know, it's 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 a permanent. It, it's exactly as you say. It's got a slight science fiction quality to it, in that it's Arabs, Romans, Vikings, all kind of all mixed up, all mixed up exactly. And I think that's one way. Even now, when we mentioned people, we could do this as a subject. You could see that people are kind of excited about it because it's it's the ultimate exotic adventure story. I think. Yeah, and and um, as we said right at the beginning of the first episode, which seems a very long time ago, um, it, it's also very very politically sensitive. Um, and, and yet, I, I mean, Tom, obviously there is no answer to that Russian Ukrainian question with this. I mean, it obviously forms it's, it, it's the foundational moment of both countries' history books. There are statues of these characters in Ukraine and in Russia. Understand the statue of Vladimir in uh, in London? Is there? Yeah. Um, why? Just down from Notting Hill. I is it outside a church there. or something? It must be something to do with that, yeah. Um, I mean, you can completely Unexpected. understand why they both lay claim. And and obviously, I'm not going to, you know, be mad to sort of pick sides in the sort of, um, in the, in the, in the sort of political debate. We're not a political podcast, but they both clearly do, they, they do have different histories, Russia and Ukraine, but they come from the same place. I think yeah. that's fair to say. 
Um, yeah. Anyway, well, right, we're just whittering now. Great stuff. Um, this has been a, a podcast devoted to uh, people going to the sea, uh, taking to the water, uh, trading, um, stabbing each other in the back. And our next episode, by coincidence, is going to be on smuggling. Perfect link, Tom. Well done. So we will see you then. Yeah, we'll see you for smugglers next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thank you.